We're going to give attention to 1 Samuel. I'm going to cover chapter 29 and 30. I'm not going to read all of that. I'm primarily going to focus on 1 Samuel chapter 30. You can find it on the uh, wherever it is in your Bible, but on the Pew Bible, it's on page 251. And we're getting close to the end of this book, and David has been running. The, the king-elect has been running, which uh, has spanned uh, 10 plus years now away from Saul, who is bitter and envious toward him. And, uh, and he doesn't know it, but Saul's about to die. And David is going to finally ascend to uh, the throne, and he's going to uh, enjoy God's plan. But it's been anything uh, since the day of that secret ceremony when he was anointed. It has been anything but easy. Uh, the path that he has had to uh, to trod, the pathway has been uh, very arduous and challenging and threatening. David now has uh, thousands with him that also have, have you know aligned with him and not with King Saul, and they have found fewer places to hide because of their number and because of all of these travels. And so David thinks it best, if you go back in chapter 27 and see, that we'll go into enemy territory. So they head into uh, to Gath and to uh, the, the region there, and they, they approach the king, Achish, uh, this enemy king. But, uh, but this time, uh, David decides to act and, de- and deceive in a way that would think, uh, Achish would think him a, a traitor from Israel and a soon-to-be ally, and he persuades him uh, to let them uh, occupy. And so they take on this city of Ziklag. And that's where the people aligned with David are in refuge and in hiding. And, uh, and they've, they've been there for a while. And he's done such a good job that King Achish uh, you know, sees, the, you know, sees the value of David. And he says, listen, I want you to be uh, you know, my chief uh, of my head of defense, so to speak. And, uh, and we can align together. And actually, we're going to go now over into battle uh, against the people of, of Judah. That's David's own people. So David is in a pretty significant uh, predicament, if you can uh, imagine. And the, the dilemma is pretty uh, profound because David knows that he can't go and fight now. He, uh, the, the, the deception is up, so to speak, and he has to go uh, and, and, and fight. He can't do this against his own people. Um, and this is the point at which God, again, intervenes uh, just mercifully. It, it's his handiwork. Uh, you can go and read it for yourself. But at the beginning of chapter 29, uh, you see how uh, the other uh, Philistine armies come to King Achish and say, uh, you're crazy. We see that you've got David with you. David has killed you know, many. How do we know that now he's aligned with us and not going to turn against us? And so Achish, the king, looks to David and says, yeah, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, we're just not going to be able to have this gig work out. Whew. You know, sigh of relief. I remember a friend uh, recently jokingly said how uh, one day he was dating a girl and uh, it just it wasn't working out. And I think both of them knew it. And uh, he knew he had to break it off. But right before he was going to... She did. Whoo! Sigh of relief. And, uh, and, and it's one of those moments, you know. God just is merciful. David is delivered in a way that he couldn't even see it. And yes, there are times when David does face serious threats uh, and challenges and heartache and disappointment uh, and confusion that leads him to places of, of, of doubt. But he is significantly different. He is unlike uh, King Saul who we saw last week was freaking out. And that was one of our application points, right? This week, I told you, whatever comes, don't what? Don't freak out. And you were surprised to hear me say that, just like when I quoted Mike Tyson and Cindy Lauper and... uh, and But you remembered it, right? This week, you know, to, to not freak out. But that is exactly what, under the weight of disappointment, uh, Saul was doing. David is not. 
We talked about that. We said, you know, when, when disappointment and, and discouragement and the heavy things come, it's natural for us to feel at times helpless. But it's another thing to be hopeless and clueless. And we talked about how last week King Saul is all of those things. He's hopeless, he's helpless, and he's clueless. Not so again with David as we're going to read here. But remember, even as these are are set apart and distinguished and there's a parallel, uh, David is still not the primary focus. Uh, David has never been the primary focus. Instead, our focus is that we would appreciate and see the types and the shadows and the things pointing us to the real and true king, who is David's greater son, King Jesus. So I know you just had a seat, but let's stand and we're going to read all of chapter. Well, actually, I'm going to read just the opening of chapter 30. Please stand. Hear this. This is God's word. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, remember, they've been dismissed from King Achish. Now they can go back to their village, to their place. The third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul. Each of his each were his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. And David said to Abathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the, the ephod and to David and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him. And then they came to the brook at Bezor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David And they gave him bread and he ate and they gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake and figs and two clusters of raisins. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water these three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, the servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. And he made a raid against the Negev. Of the Cherahites and against those who belonged to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Hmm. David said to him, he didn't say that, but he thought that. Hmm. He said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Well, swear to me by your God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. We'll pause there. I'll read the rest in a moment. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we need help. So we pray that you would have uh, right now your spirit come and help to shine forth truth and grace in our hearts and our minds that we might be humbled, that you, God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit would be lifted up and exalted. Would you help us to love this king and live for this kingdom more because of what we reveal and see here in your word in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. It's 
uh, 2 or 3 in the morning and uh, your phone is ringing. Okay. Uh, Let's just go ahead and assume that you you don't notice who it's from and, and you ignore it because it's somebody trying to sell you a car warranty. Right. Okay. So you ignore that call. But let's let's say it's not. It's two or three in the morning. Phone rings. It's a loved one. Well, you know, years ago when I was in my you know college years, early twenties, if the phone rang at two or three in the morning, not a big deal. I mean, it could be my friend saying, "Let's go fishing," or "Let's go down to the Krispy Kreme that's open," you know, on Pelham Road, twenty-four hours a day. But now I'm in a season of life. And I've been in in an occupation that when I get a phone call at 2 or 3 in the morning, it's not good. It's not good. What happens, not if, but when that type of phone call and news comes? Well, let's just trace back through this text. And like I said, I'll, I'll read the rest in a moment. Here are my three headings. They're listed in the order of service. The day of sorrow, I think this is just the natural progression that we see, the movements. The day of sorrow, the way of victory, and then lastly, a display of generosity. This day of sorrow, can you imagine what it's like for David and his men? They've been out at battle. They've been away from family. They've been away from what's familiar. The, the journey back would have been filled naturally with lots of anticipation. They're looking forward. They're thinking about it, eagerly awaiting good food, things that are familiar to them, uh, you know, affection maritally, uh, the sounds of children, the joys. And then they get to the city, and what is it? It's burned. I, I, I just, and, and I guess the only good news is that there is no blood, so there's, there's no sign that they were slaughtered, but they've been taken away, and they've been enslaved and presumably abused. Can you imagine this? It's, a, it's, a, it's like a nightmare. It's an insufferable thought. Let alone a reality. And what indication do we have of where they are? Or even who took them? They don't. And verse 4 is naturally what you see. You would expect this display of emotion. They, with their voices, cried out. And they did this. And they did this so long. And crying out and crying out and crying out. That they're, they're, they're spent. They're exhausted. They can weep no more. I just want to take this as an opportunity to... As a reminder, okay, that... For the people of God, for them, for for us, for the people of God, while we indeed have his promises and his assurances and his presence in our life, and, and finally, someday, ultimately, the hope of deliverance, we are not delivered from a world and the realm of grief. There is a, a, a real place. In fact, it's one of the gifts that God has given to his image bearers in a unique way to give voice to mourning and sorrow and grief. I know that we're on this big trend right now where no one wants to call a funeral a funeral. It's like it's, it's like this new unspoken rule. You have to call it a celebration of life. I'm not keen on that. It's, this is this is two cents for Troy. This is not what the Bible says. But I'll just tell you, I just call it a funeral. All right. And I was at a, a friend of mine who died of cancer a number of years ago here in town. Uh, didn't didn't know the Lord. We were there at his 
celebration of life. And he asked me to conduct the ceremony. And then I got to preach the gospel. And then some family members began to share and talk about uh, this. And one of his uncles, who I knew was a Christian, stood up. And he said, you know what? We're told we're all supposed to call this a celebration of life. But I don't feel that way. I feel, I feel horrible sorrow. I miss Harry so bad. I miss him. There's a place for that. I don't know where. This is definitely not in the Bible. And I don't know why we, we get or give this impression that you're supposed to just, you know, buck up and be happy. We're not instructed to do that. Can you imagine how it feels for David? The, the sorrow, the, the deep sadness. It, and then just to make matters worse, as if it couldn't get worse. And we've already said that with David. But now... Losing, losing family and then have the, the men that are with you who are now embittered turn on you. I mean, he already escaped the spear. He's, he, you know, he's already escaped all kinds of enemies, attacks and danger. Can you imagine what it's like now for him to have to, to feel the threat of the embittered souls of people wanting to, that, that were following him, aligned with him? He feels isolated. We were better off, David, without you. We, we, we've, we've gone on this journey all for naught. This is where it all led. This is horrible. Let's look together at verse 6. Try to put yourself in David's scenario, his place. David was greatly distressed, verse 6, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were embittered in soul, each of his sons and daughters. But David... And that's very important. It's very important. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. In other words, he does not feed the bitterness. He perseveres by faith. It didn't, it didn't say that David just thought thoughts about God and he just felt better about life circumstances. No, it says he was actually strengthened in the Lord. In other words, this is not merely an emotional experience. And I don't know precisely what it means, but I've got some indication. One of the indications is that David goes to Abathar, the priest, and he wants to discern things of the Lord. And, and thanks be to God. And then there's the things with the, we've read of already, the, the ephod and the, the Urim. And we don't even know exactly what that is, but it's an indication from the Lord. And we don't need to know what it is because we don't need to go to the priest anymore. We have a perfect high priest. His name is King Jesus. And it's on the basis of that that the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 could say this. We grieve, but not like the world does without hope. There's a difference. Yes, we grieve. And thank God David does grieve well. Because, and, and that he does and that he's faithful through it because as a result of that and his experience is so firsthand and not in theory, but in reality, he can go and, and, and pray forth words that we can adopt in the Psalms of Lament. Because in Psalm 34, listen, these are, these are profound words. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who finds refuge in him, King David said. And then in verse 18, the Lord, hear the promise, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He's near the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. Thanks be to God. 
And then the other thing that we know he does after inquiring of the Lord that I think is what strengthened him in the Lord is that he obeyed. He didn't just pray to the priest. He heard word and then he stepped forth in obedience. Again, something beautiful. Where does that lead him? Where does that? He, well, he goes and pursues these that have taken him, taken away the families and all of their belongings. The way of victory. Here's my second heading, and this is where I'm going to pick back up and read the rest. In case you were curious what happened after this, you know, this guy just shows up and tells them, you know, where the, the enemy is. Verse 16, let's keep reading. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, nothing. Whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and all the people drove the livestock before him. And he said, "This is." And they said, "This is David's spoil." Then David came to the two hundred men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook of Bezor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows along among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except that each man may lead his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given us given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is whose goes down into the battle, so shall the share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth and Negev and Jatir and Aurora and Asimoth and Eshtemoah and Raskal in the cities of of the Jeremalites and the cities of the Kenites in Hormah and Boshan and Atak and Hebron and all the places where David and his men had roamed. They just happened to find in the middle of the desert this Egyptian slave left for dead. It's, it's, it's God's gift to, to them. He's the one who guides them. I think it's an interesting note. It would be interesting to, to think they didn't know his identity, presumably before they showed him hospitality. <laughs> they were kind to him. They bandaged him. They fed him. They, 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 they were nursing him back to health. And lo and behold, and of course, it's not lost either. The fact that the cruelty of this Amalekite against him just sealed the deal of their fate. Something to consider. It led to their, their demise. Some may read this and think that what it, he leads out to do, David, is sheer revenge. Maybe that's shocking to you. Maybe that's sweet to you. But that's not what it is. In fact, the Amalekites, being the, the pagan evil people that were God's enemies, God had already instructed Saul, which was his biggest mistake and disobedience, to not 
take care of this, this lot and deal with them a long, long time ago. And now David is finishing what should have been already done. And it is not, it's not vindictive. It is the justice of God. And, and all of us have to deal with that. In one sense, the results and the consequences of our sins, because every one of us dies. The wages of sin is death. Doesn't escape anyone. Now, sometimes the Lord has a way of speeding up that day for some of his enemies, as we have seen in Joshua, Judges, and in 1 Samuel. Verse 19, this great king, I love it. Nothing was missing. David brought back all. But, 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 but the spoils of war and, the, and the, 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 all that they had, had, had gathered and gained in this pursuit, there's some who are greedy, right? You, you probably caught this, right? That's why this is what motivates them. Let's read it again, verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they didn't go with us, let's not give them any of the spoil. And David addresses that greed... Generosity and a whole, whole policy of generosity corrects them. He says, it's the Lord. Look at verse 23. David said, my brothers, this is what the Lord has given us. By the way, this is not, uh, this is the, the new policy that he has set in place. And I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and move on to my last uh, point, which is the display of generosity. David, in setting up this policy that everyone enjoys this, these spoils and, and, and such. It's not a redistribution of wealth. It's, it's a clear indication that they understand that they're all beneficiaries of God's gracious mercy. In the last few verses, David gives his friends and even other territories some of this that we read of. This is a great contrast to what we saw with Saul, King Saul, who took and took and took. And David is a king who gives and gives generously. The greedy, the reason that it motivates them is because they assume and think that they earned it and therefore they don't want to share it. And we too, that, that, that's a mix up in the grand scheme of things. We too get mixed up when we assume that we have gained God's blessings and favor and love through what we have done. But 1 Corinthians 4 corrects us. What do you have, Paul asks, that you did not receive. If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? As if you earned it, in other words. It's why I think that I wanted us to hear this morning the New Testament reading of the parable of the workers in Matthew 20. Maybe you, you can already begin to see the parallel. The workers, those who had worked the full day, they're grumbling. Why? Did they gotten a raw deal? No, beginning of the day, they had agreed to a fair wage. This isn't a story about fairness. It's not a parable about fairness or overtime pay or bonuses. This is about the generosity of the master, which he is entirely free to give. Thanks be to God. They were grumbling. These guys, the the folks in the parable that Jesus later highlights in Matthew 20, 
Because they're boasting in what they had done. They were focused on their work. They're grumbling because they don't understand the master. They don't know him. They don't understand his generosity. God has entirely set aside ability and merit. There is no one who is deserving. We don't earn God's blessing, favor, and eternal life. It's, by the way, so just to reframe it another way, it's not like, okay, some people are so bad. Yes, they need mercy. But I would rather earn my way. I don't need mercy. No, we all, every last one of us, to a person, has messed up, been sinful, been lazy, and we don't earn our way. And, and again, I'm just drawing a lot here from Paul's writings to help us. 2 Timothy 1.9, it's God who saved us and called us into a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He gave us this in and through the king, who, like David, was at times, Jesus, despised, isolated, grieved, suffered many threats from the bitter, from the greedy, only to die a death that we should have died, and this in our place. Do you know this king? Do you, do you, do you intimately know this king and call upon him, following, trusting him, serving him with gratitude? Maybe, I trust that many of you are. I would, I would also gather that some of you, like me, find yourself moving in and out of avoiding that king. And I want to explore, in closing, a few reasons why it is that we avoid a king as these in relationship to David. Here's the first one. Some of you today might be avoiding the king because you don't want to submit to him. You, can't, you, you, you cannot imagine that living for Jesus is really worth it. You're glad to work, but you imagine yourself as self-made, as independent. You can forge your own way without God. If there is a God, you'll definitely be deserving of his favor, especially in comparison to so-so-and-so-and-so-and-so. But you don't want his involvement. And God's cool with that, if there's a God. Here's another reason some of you are avoiding the king. Because honestly, you're miffed. You're irked. It may be because of some lingering sorrow or, or bitterness. You're following him, but it doesn't seem to be paying off. You've invested yourself spiritually and morally. All the while thinking, you know, the eternal life thing's fine. But you don't like what God's put in your path. In this life, by way of trials and troubles and sorrows, and you look around and you perceive that it's going so well for other people that you find yourself at times envious. And, and you think, I think I deserve better, or at least they don't deserve that. There's an 18th century German scholar, J.A. Mingle, who wrote, It's wicked to wrong God, but still worse to think oneself wronged by God. And men think this oftener than one would suppose. Friends, Christ, our, our, our resurrected king, 
You know, he's the one who, just like David, but in a, a, a million times over, can bring back all. And he indeed will. Because he's resurrected. Because he is the king with all authority and power. He loves you. I, I don't get tired of hearing that. I don't think you do either. God loves you. The king is generous. He's not vindictive. And I I appreciate the way that sometimes he's merciful and generous to me and it rebukes me. (laughs) And you may not even know what that means, but someday you will. 17th century English preacher George Swinnick used to say, your whole life is a bundle of God's mercies. But then to help bring it into focus in words that I could never come up with and an imagery that I think is just so spot on, I want you to follow me in this. Meditate, my friends, upon God's mercies, he writes, to you from your birth. Look at the dangers that you've been delivered from, the journeys you've been protected in, the seasonable help he has sent you, the suitable support he has afforded you in distress, the counsel he has given you in doubts, and the comforts he has provided you in sorrow and darkness. These are present with you by meditation. Every breath in your life is a gift of mercy. Do not forget the former favors bestowed on you and your family. And get this imagery. This is... This is so good. If you're, if you're asleep, wake up. Hear this. An empty perfume bottle still smells when the perfume is gone. And you might feel that way. You may feel like it's, it's, it's bad. It's gone. But to meditate on his mercies, past, present, and future, thanks be to God. The third reason some of you are avoiding the king is because you know that he's good and that he's holy and that he's free to judge. But you know that there are things in your life that are broken and wrong and unholy. You know you're, you're undeserving and guilty and you just can't imagine a king that might be willing to forgive you and embrace you and even use you for good. And I'm telling you, it is not lost and you are not lost. But friends, in Christ, it is never too late. He offers us eternal life. So, regardless this morning, whether you feel angry or proud or sorrowful or envious or helpless or hopeless or bitter, regardless, regardless of whether you came to Jesus 30-something years ago or four months ago, Take your eyes off of your labors and your costs. Maybe even some of your sorrows. Look to the generous master, our King Jesus. Let me pray for us. We have this great promise that you will restore the world, Father, in 2 Corinthians. You were made poor so that we might enjoy Riches, You tasted death that we might taste eternal life. And we're so grateful that you are risen and coming again. Lord, you are not obliged to pursue anyone, nor are you obliged to forgive anyone. So we do cry for mercy, not justice, but mercy on account of Christ's merit. 
I pray that you'd grant us a willingness to admit our great need. Tear down the pride. Tear down the independence. Lord, protect people. I pray today in our church family that might be tempted towards bitterness. I pray that you'd surprise them with your comfort and your hope. You'd strengthen them in the Lord like you did David. Would you comfort those who mourn in our church family? For lots of people in the communities and countries of the world that are especially hit hard because of this pandemic. Lord, comfort, please. And may they see it as from your hand. Turn to you. Use your church. Lord, please be with those who are in prison. Especially those who are brothers and sisters, followers of you. It's a hard place. Pray you sustain them and cause them to persevere. I pray for people who are struggling with illness, lingering illness. Extend your healing touch. Sustain them inwardly, but physically. Lord, help us to exercise faith this week that is trusting and obedient, even generous, like we know you are towards us. And because we know where our hope lies. Please come back and restore all things. We ask in Jesus' name, even now as he taught his disciples, praying together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.